Hebrews chapter 6, and this passage from verse 4 to verse 12, as was, just, as was just read for you, is considered very difficult by all of the scholars and commentators, and, and I will submit to you, I don't think it's very difficult, but I think the reason why it's considered so difficult is because if you come into this passage with a preconceived notion of theology then you are going to have a really hard time trying to understand what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Uh, And so it is my goal in this lesson to try to alleviate those concerns and then as well show uh, the the big uh, unbelievable warning that the writer here gives as a staggering warning about our faith and about our walk with God. Now, We are right in the middle of a section, and as I mentioned last week, I really would have wished that we could have done 4 through 12 while we were in chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, But that would have taken another 45 minutes, and so that wasn't going to work. But connecting back to the prior context is absolutely critical to understanding what the writer is doing here. And as I've told you many times, if you see like in verse 4, when the first word is for, then we really need to make sure we're staying connected to all of of the context that's being given. Remember in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, I have a lot of things to tell you that are hard to explain. But the reason why it's hard to explain it to you is not because God's word is hard, but because you're dull of hearing. You are lazy listeners is essentially what he tells them. And because of that, that has caused a number of problems. They are lacking in spiritual growth. They are unskilled in the word of God. And therefore, he says, I can't explain these things to you. And so he then tells them in chapter 6, verse 1, what needs to happen is you need to leave behind those basic elementary principles, those things that you seem to stay stuck in over and over again and move on to to maturity, to grow and become more spiritually mature by doing that. He says by doing so, that God permits them, this will be what you need. Now, this connection here is so important because he's going to explain now why it is so devastatingly critical that you grow spiritually. And that's what the first word of, of verse 4 of chapter 6 is is jarring. In, in the Greek, the first word is just impossible. It's boom, impossible. And it, it, why would you do that except to gain your attention? So in our English, it is impossible. And that should always open your eyes. When the scriptures ever say something is impossible, you go, really? <laughs> something can't happen. Something is completely impossible. But before he describes... What is impossible, he gives a description of the kinds of people he's talking about. And you'll notice it there in verse 4. For it is impossible, and then he stops, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Notice this long description that he gives of who he is talking about. I am amazed at how many people approach this text and say, this is describing unbelievers. There is no way... (laughs) 
He is giving a description of followers of Christ. They have been enlightened, which is Paul uses in Ephesians in describing a Christian. Not only that, he describes them as tasting the heavenly gift. Not only that, they share in the Holy Spirit. There is no evidence of anybody in the New Testament being a non-Christian, but sharing in the powers of the Holy Spirit. No. We are talking about a Christian who has fully experienced what life is like following Jesus, enjoying the blessings that are in Christ. Verse 5, tasted the goodness of the Word of God as well as the powers of the age to come. This is describing someone who is not just a fringe Christian either. I think that's important. It's not a fake Christian who has the knowledge of the Gospel but never really fully committed or fully engaged. This is a very important description that's given. This is somebody that was truly following. They've tasted the Word of God. They have enjoyed the blessings of following Him. They've shared in the Holy Spirit and and the, the powers of the age to come. A very lengthy description for a reason. I believe the reason is because it would be easy to be dismissive and go, well, it's those kind of outsiders or those, you know, marginal Christians. He doesn't want the reader to do that. He wants to warn this audience who has truly enjoyed what it means to be a follower of Jesus that there is a serious warning. And he states two shocking things. After describing that they are ones who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, in verse 6 he says... And then falls away. That's startling. Again, you would expect that to be like, well, somebody who's just kind of on the edges. Well, they've tasted everything about what it means to be a Christian. They've enjoyed the blessings. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've enjoyed all of the things that come with the benefits and blessings of following Christ. And then he turns around and says... And then falls away. Now, I want us to see, that's not the first time he's actually said that to them. You might remember back in chapter 3 and verse 12, he gave the same thing back there. In chapter 3, verse 12, he said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to do what? Fall away from the living God. So the writer of Hebrews is not blindsiding them, but he has been giving some very strong warnings and trying to get them to understand here is the concern about you being dull of hearing. If you continue to be lazy listeners and not engage the Word of God and seek to grow and find the depths, He says, here is somebody who has the knowledge, who has enjoyed the Word of God, who has tasted the blessings, shared in the Holy Spirit, the powers of the age to come. But He says, and then they fall away. And if that wasn't shocking enough, now we bring in our impossible word that we've had this middle detour for a moment back to verse 4 for it is impossible and then he describes who he's talking about then bring back to verse 6 to restore them again 
to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It is impossible for an individual who has tasted all of those things and enjoyed all of those experiences and shared in the Holy Spirit all of those benefits, they've been a part of that and then fall away. He says, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. And if you're like me, I just find that terribly jarring. It's impossible? How could that be? How could you say that? And one of the things I want to do before we explore what the writer of Hebrews is doing is help alleviate a little bit of that concern by showing you there are a lot of places in the scriptures where this kind of impossibility is described. In my notes, I put um, six different passages. To sake of time, I cut that down for the screen. But there are a number of places. And let me just show you a few of them. Like 2 Peter 2, verse 19. For whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What is the true proverb says has happened to them the dog returns to its own vomit and the so after after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire notice peter does the same thing as you take yourself out of the defilements of the world and then you turn and go right back into him he says well that's bad He gives a picture of something that you're not going to come out of. John does the same thing, a passage that we often have a lot of discussions about when studied in class. 1 John 5.16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray about that. And we're always blown away by that too. Like what? Don't don't pray about it. There is this idea in the Scriptures that there is an impossibility. The writer of Hebrews will do it himself later on in Hebrews chapter 10. And in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. My point in showing you these is that what the writer of Hebrews says about the impossibility of bringing back to repentance is not the only place that you see that. John speaks that way, Peter speaks that way, and the writer of Hebrews will say it again later on in in this sermon, in this letter that he gives. So here are some of those pictures. I want us to spend a minute thinking about what Jeremiah was told because this, I think, gives us some understanding of what exactly is taking place and why it would be considered impossible or to not pray for such a one or the end states worse than the first if we were to mesh what all of those New Testament writers are saying. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4. 
And listen to what you have God saying to Jeremiah of what he's supposed to declare. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, When men fall, do they not rise again? You know, think about the imagery of if you go outside and fall down, what's the first thing you do? Right back up. If one turns away, does he not return? So notice the question now God asks, Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? It's an interesting rhetorical question that God is offering. What should happen to Israel? They have fallen down. They should get back up. If they've gone off the path, they should get back on the path. So here's God's question. Why don't they do that? Why do they refuse to not come back to the path? Why do they refuse not to get up? He gives the answer. There he says, they hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. You know what God's doing? God is saying, now here's what should be natural. You fall down, you get back up. You go off the path, you should get back on And so he poses the question, so why is Israel not doing that? And he gives them the answer. Because they hold fast to their deceit. They're staying right where they want to be. In fact, he says it a little bit stronger when he says, they refuse to return. Here is God. Listen to God. I've paid attention and I'm listening to what they're saying. And they're not saying the right thing about me. Why is that? He says there, because no one will stop their evil. No one will stop and contemplate. What have I done? Instead, they just plow headlong into the direction they're going. They are going to do what they want to do, and you cannot tell them otherwise. That's what he says is the problem for Israel. And so he tells Jeremiah, they had the chance. It's not that it was God saying, well, you can't come back. What he's saying is where Israel is, they won't come back. And that, I believe, is ultimately the picture, is that here in this picture, if we were to use the words of what the writer of Hebrews has said in chapter 3 as well in chapter 6, I think we would say Israel tasted the blessings of God in the wilderness and they enjoyed the blessings of coming into the land and everything that God had done for them and all the God's promises being fulfilled as it was given to them. But they had an evil heart, chapter 3, that led them to fall away from the living God. Or to use the picture here, they refuse to come back to God. It is impossible for them to return because they are plunging themselves headlong. They remain in their deceit and they refuse to consider the evil of their ways. That's what Jeremiah's message was. And I think that it's important for us to consider then is that what God tells Jeremiah is not that he would not restore the people. But they are at a point in their sins where they simply will not and cannot. It's why God would tell Isaiah, you go preach to him and guess what's that, what that's going to do. Seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. And their hearts will be hardened and they're going to stumble. That's the picture. 
And I believe that it's important to underscore what the writer of Hebrews is doing. The writer of Hebrews' intention is not to cause Christians to go, well, I just don't know if I'm saved or not. That's not the point. That's not what's going on here. He's not trying to strike fear into the hearts of the whole audience and say, well, now you can have no security about your salvation whatsoever. We have no idea what's going to happen, so let us all be really concerned. That's not the point. The point is very important, but simply this. If we do not move on into maturity, you are going to fall away. And no one's going to be able to bring you back. That's the warning he's giving. It is a super strong warning. Because notice what he has said the falling away from our last uh, section last week came from. How did it all begin? Dole of hearing. Lazy listeners. Not digging in. And here is the picture that this is a group of Christians who they're not wanting to grow. They're retracing the basics. They're staying in the milk. They're remaining unskilled in the word of God. Go back to chapter two. What's happening? They're drifting away by neglecting their salvation. They are not paying attention to the word of God. They are not diligently and intensely giving themselves to God's word and digging into the depths and growing in the knowledge and coming to understand who he is and experiencing that those who make the decision to not grow, to not be mature, to not dig in, to not leave the basics and press on, he says, there's no way to rescue them. There's no way to rescue them. For it is impossible for those who have experienced this walk with God and all of the blessings that come from it and all that these people were enjoying and sharing the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God and the powers of the age to come and the goodness and taste and all of those things says it's impossible to restore them to repentance if they're in that condition. I think there's a lot of important conclusions, but I would like to draw a very big one just for the moment. No one falls away because a person just said something a little off. And they go, well, I'm just never going to follow God anymore. I'm gone. That's an excuse over the reality that the writer of Hebrews presents. You will blame somebody else, but here's the reality. You were dull of hearing. You stayed in the basics. You didn't grow. You stayed in the milk and you didn't press on to maturity. And he says those who continue to do that, there is a frightful thing. There will be a falling away. We have to grow. I hope that we will hear what the writer of Hebrews is doing to these Christians. Growth is not an option. Staying in the milk is not an option. Rehearsing the basics is not an option. Because if you choose to do that, you are spiritually doomed. You are going to have this happen to you. Staying in the simplicity, staying spiritually immature, you are going to be shaken and you are going to fall away. 
And for me, <clears throat> I think there's just such a number of frightening concepts and critical truths here. First, true saving faith is not intellectually affirming Christian teachings. That's not where the writer of Hebrews wants them. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We repent of our sins. We come to church. We sit in the pews. We take the Lord's Supper. We pray. We listen to a sermon. Rinse, repeat. There you go. That's not what he wants for them. And the picture to me is so frightening because it is so easy to come to worship, sit in the pew every week, listen to a lesson, take the Lord's Supper, recognize that we've been baptized, and fall away from God completely because we do not desire Jesus and we do not want to grow. It is, in my mind, a horrible tragedy That Christianity is often depicted as going to church. And that might be the worst thing you could do. Because you delude yourself into thinking you're fine with God. Because here you are. But you're dull of hearing and haven't grown and moved on from the basics. And desire the meat. You just stay there. And I think it's interesting that it is so important the writer of Hebrews turns around and simply says, if you're in that condition, there's nothing that we can do for you. That's what's so striking about the words. It's impossible. For the longest time as I've started doing this work of teaching, it always was a struggle to me for all the different people that I would talk to and work with and study with. And you've certainly experienced the same. You're teaching people and you're reaching out and you're sharing the gospel. And you want so badly to be able to change a person's heart. And you think if you could just say something so right, you would just break through their heart and they would suddenly uh get it. And here in this scenario that the writer of Hebrews is presenting, he's saying here is a person who knows the truth. They're not the marginal Christian as if they don't know. They know the truth. They've come to the Lord. They've been enlightened. They've tasted what the Word of God is. They've tasted how good it is. They've shared in the Holy Spirit, the powers of the age to come. And if such an individual refuses to dig deep, grow more, to have a heart to desire God, there's nothing that we're going to be able to do to change that. That's what God was telling Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you go preach to them, but man, they're going to be like scorpions and they're going to be terrible to you. They're going to be like sitting on thorns because they're not going to hear. There's nothing Jeremiah is going to say that's going to change their heart. All he can say is, you guys need to change your heart. (laughs) You need to look at your life. 
You need to consider deeply the things of God. But nobody can make you do that. And that's why it's impossible for anybody to come in and go, okay, I'm going to pull you out of here. Because you've put yourself there of your own will. And that is what he's so scared about. In fact, you'll notice in verses 7 and 8, he uses a very simple illustration to get across the idea. Verse 7, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Notice he just gives a picture. Here is land. And God just makes it rain. Just very simple imagery. And he says, there's some land that produces a useful crop and it's blessed by God. And there is some land that bears thorns and thistles. It's worthless, receives a curse, and we burned up in the end. Was there any difference in the rain? Why did one land produce fruit and the other land produce thorns and thistles? Well, you might be thinking of the parable of the sower and the soils. Because one heart took the blessings of God and the reign of God and all that God was doing and was fruitful with it. And another heart took all the very same blessings, all the very same knowledge, all the very same information, experienced all the same things in God and produced thorns. And notice God's response to that. It's worthless, receives a curse, it's about to be burned. Not valuable. He wants these Christians to hear so strongly this message. You know where you are with God based on the fruit you're producing. It's your heart. And only you can change your heart. Only you have the decision of what you will do when God is giving you His his information and He's giving you His blessings and He's allowing you to enjoy everything of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Only you can do something with that. I would love to make you do it. (laughs) I can't make you do it. And you can't make me do it. The decision rests only upon you about what you will do. And what he's challenged them is he's told them basically you lack fruit. Because he started off by saying you're dull of hearing. And that's why I can't explain these things to you. And think about the warning that he's giving to them. If that doesn't change, then it's impossible to restore to repentance those who have enjoyed all those blessings and then turn and walk away. That's what Peter said. That's what John said. That's what the writer of Hebrews doesn't say even later on more clearly. No longer remaining a sacrifice for sins. It is so important for us to consider our situation before God and why He is so concerned for them at this moment. Of what we choose to do with the Word of God. And in particular, if that we talked about last week, if we look at our lives and our journey with God and we do not see a spiritual growth happening, that is supposed to not be like, oh, that's interesting. I should probably do something about it. But the biggest red flag you could possibly have, you are in spiritual danger. You are not growing. 
You are tasting all these things and there is not fruit. And here the writer of Hebrews is scared for them and says, be careful. Now, you have to love how he ends this, though. Look at verse 9. It's almost like he knows that was rough. (laughs) Because in verse 9 he says, Though we speak this way, (laughs) it's like, I know that was rough. Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name and serving saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice he gives two pieces of hope. One, I'm confident That though you are in this spiritual condition of being dull of hearing, being in the milk, staying in the basics, you will not stay that way. He goes, I am confident of better things for you. You're not going to let this happen to you. He lays down the warning. If you stay this way, you are spiritually doomed. But we have confidence in you. You're not going to do that. You're not going to allow that to happen to you. You are going to dig in. You are going to grow. You are going to spend more time with God. You are going to desire His Word. You are going to press on to maturity. So you have to love that He just gives that to them. Is I know you're going to take this warning and you're going to run with it and you are going to do great things with it. Better things toward your salvation, number one. Number two, the hope He gives is in the next verse when He says, God knows your work. And God knows your love and what you're doing for Him. God is not so unjust that He doesn't know your heart and know how you are giving yourself to Him. Notice that great hope right there. God's not so unjust that He doesn't see the effort. If you are trying, if you are giving yourself and you are serving others and loving the Lord your God, he says there in in that verse, in, in verse 10, that he's not unjust to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. He sees that. Don't look at it and go, well, here I am on my spiritual walk with God. And what you're saying is everything that I've done up to this point is useless. That's not true. God's not unjust. He sees where you are. He sees how much growth you've had. You have hope in that. But He doesn't want them to stand still. He understands what we're trying to do. But notice how He turns that in verse 11. But we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, same diligence, same intensity. You must have that intensity to have the full assurance of hope to the end. Notice verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish or slow. The reason he says this to these Christians is he says, I'm concerned about your spiritual intensity. I'm concerned about your diligence. I'm concerned about the earnestness. And remember how this all started is the writer here knows their fruit. And looking at their fruit, he's now backward argued all of this. And says, I'm concerned about you. 
Because there should be fruit over here and it hasn't happened. Remember it says, by now you ought to be teachers. And here you still need to be taught the basics. Here he gives it to them again. I'm telling you these things so that you will have the same earnestness. You need to get that diligence back up, that intensity going, so that you will not be sluggish. I want you to think about that in verse 12. That is so easy to become sluggish. I think there's nothing easier to do than to be a Christian for a few years and just let a little bit of time go by. And what we do is we start coasting. We've kind of built up our spiritual skateboard of momentum. And then we just kind of, there we go. We're just going to cruise on into the promised land. (laughs) And he says, don't do that. Have the same intensity, have the same earnestness, have the same desire. Continue to press on so that you are not sluggish. And verse 12 as well, imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. I can't help but think that that is a foreshadowing of Hebrews 11 of where he's going to go. Want you to imitate those who have faith and through patience inherit the promises. So he's going to give a whole expose of the kind of faith the people needed to have to inherit the promises. And he's starting to leak this right here and going, you think about how, what it took for those to inherit promises, the kind of diligence and intensity, the kind of growth you see in them. And you have the same earnestness and intensity and you imitate that same faith let me end by just simply putting it all in one simple sentence what the writer of Hebrews is saying is you must press forward to avoid spiritual disaster he said that back in chapter 2 when he used the illustration of drifting Way on back, we used that illustration and talked about you're out there in the water and if you're not actively paddling to where you're supposed to go, the current just starts pulling you. And you don't even notice. It's so subtle. And he's bringing in that idea right here. If you do not press forward, you will be in spiritual danger. But we have hope of better things for you. That all of us together can encourage each other to press on to the goal that lies ahead of us. To not give up and to not lose heart. I hope you will take this week's lesson and last week's lesson, put them together and just take spiritual inventory. And really honestly evaluate. Do I still have the same intensity that I had from the start? Do I still desire the Lord as much as I desired Him from the beginning? Am I still pressing on to the goal? Do I want to dig into the deeper things? Do I want to come to know God completely? Is He my everything or have I allowed the world to clog up my life so that I've lost my intensity? And I'm just kind of coasting along and I'm just going through the motions and I'm doing what I think is just the minimum to really evaluate that. And nobody can know that but you. I can't come into your life and tell you. You can't come into mine and tell me.
We all put up these wonderful Christian fronts. Look at us. We're all doing great. We're all spiritually mature. Only you can know if you really are where you should be. If you really do have that same desire, same intensity, and same love. Only you can address that. And as God said to Jeremiah, only you can do something about that. If you are not where you ought to be, please heed the words of what God said to Jeremiah. Do not remain in deceit and do not plow headlong like a horse just going right on to disaster. Stop what you're doing and turn before it's too late. Give yourself to the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if we can help you in that process, we want to do that. To help you turn away from your sins. If you're not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that is your starting point where you turn to to God in full submission and full faith to Him. And if you are a Christian and you have tasted all of the blessings of God and you have enjoyed all of those and you look at this and you go, I need to do something now. Let us help you. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?